What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguero. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, I'm going to tell you why. Welcome to the Death Row Diaries Patreon episode. I still haven't figured out what to call that. It's a bonus episode. This is just for our Patreon listeners. We appreciate you guys. Tell a friend to check it out, and I'm glad that you're listening. So we're just going to answer a few questions from our subscribers today. Let's just get to it. Samantha in Silmar, California, she wants to know... Bill, did you see that they caught the serial killer in Stockton? Yeah, I did see that. His name is Wesley Brownlee. He's a 43-year-old African-American guy. And yeah, I, I did see that they caught him. You leave a trail that big, I mean, it's not very difficult for law enforcement to use the tactics that they use to basically zero in on you. So, correct me if I'm wrong, he was going around downtown Stockton and just kind of killing people who were outside for whatever reason. A lot of times they were coming home from work or, you know, they were waiting for a ride, whatever, any number of reasons someone's standing around outside. And Stockton's not a big city. So, I imagine the police could have just been staking places out, following someone who looked suspicious and who matched that photo and probably wasn't all that hard to catch him, right? Well, the photo they had of the video they had I saw on television was just a shadow, basically. And they said that he walked with a limp. Well, I watched that video. I did not notice a limp on this guy. Maybe that's just a stroll. I'm not sure. But, yeah, the, 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 the thing that caught my attention was that the six murders in Stockton were all within one block, I'm sorry, one mile of where he lived. And I'm sure that if law enforcement that they probably drew a map where the killings were and they saw the area was very specific and they probably put people on the ground searching for suspicious activity somebody walking around they probably pulled over a lot of people that they saw one of them that they started picking up on was him and they began to follow him and of course when they pulled him over they found that he was basically doing what people with this type of intent do and in fact that is hunt they're out there hunting for a potential victim it doesn't seem that he's an organized killer at all he's very disorganized and what that means in serial terms is that he doesn't go out with a specific victim in mind it's whoever he comes upon and that seems to be his mo in this situation he uses a, a gun a handgun and in most of those instances and shoots the person kills them and then walks away there's no robbery or anything else. But you can tell if you're profiling people, even if you were working in a department store and you're watching 
like from a camera monitor and you're looking for someone shoplifting, there's just a certain way that someone moves when it's like, well, what is he doing out out here at this hour? Like he, he doesn't have a specific purpose, really. There, there's no reason for him to be here. He's he's uh, spending too much time doing these things. Uh, you know what I'm, Do you understand what I'm getting at? Well, sure. I mean, police do the same thing. They're watching to see what he's doing. He's just walking randomly. Okay, maybe he's a jogger, but he's not jogging. Does he have tennis shoes on? Why is he jogging at this time? Okay, could he work at midnight shift somewhere? Sure. But they, they have a list of different things that they look for, how he acts, what he does. Most people walking around at that time of the night or in the evening around neighborhoods randomly are usually looking for a target. It be a house to burglarize, a victim to rob, or in this case, someone to kill. So, yeah, he kind of, by him just walking around doing what he was doing, he gave himself up, basically. He would have been better off entering people's homes, basically, than him being so visible. Yeah, because his way or his tactic was to walk around looking for victims. And, of course, you're right. He would have been better off having a specific location he was going to drive there and get there, stop, and do what he wanted to do. Like a lot of serial killers, and that's why they're so hard to catch, because they have an intended house or home or victim, and no one knows who it is but them. They get there, they get out, and they go specifically to that location. Other times, they have a dog with them, or children with them, as we've mentioned in other episodes, to throw off police. You know, if you have a dog with you, you never think of that person being a burglar or a serial killer. It's the same thing if you have a bunch of a kid with you or two kids with you. No one's thinking that. But in this situation, it was very obvious what he was doing. And when they arrested him, of course, ballistics, the weapon used, the weapon that he had, always say a lot. And, of course, the position of the firearm got him arrested immediately and held. And, of course, the counts of murder were then... Uh, he was charged with them because the the firearm uh, bullets matched those of the people that were killed. Or, you know, like in my case, the guy that's been trying to break into my house have a paper route. That seems to be one of the more brilliant covers that I've heard of. That that could be a whole movie, the paper route killer. Yeah, I mean that would that would be a hell of a name too, right? The newspaper boy killer. <laughs> you know, he comes to your home. He's a six-year-old crusty old guy and he's beating on your door Matt runs downstairs you know oh yeah good stuff right there so what's going to happen to Wesley Brownlee now now that he's been arrested okay so um, last night or yesterday he was I believe it was yesterday he was arraigned or it was Monday obviously he was arraigned and um, basically he enters a plea of not guilty or he doesn't say anything because he's been pending um, getting a defense team. But already, the district attorney in that particular county, and I would say he's, he's pretty intelligent. He knows um, how to handle this case, at least now, and that was to charge him with three counts of murder, uh, that he has the evidence which holds him with no bail. If he can't get out, he's staying right where he's at. I'm sure they're going to continue investigating as these murder charges are being processed, which then would take uh, a, an official arraignment where he would enter the plea of not guilty with an attorney. After that, it could be 30 days. It, it could be longer.
longer, depending on his attorney, and he will have what's called a preliminary hearing where they will bring the evidence against him in front of the court. It'll only be a judge, there's no jury. That judge then will make a determination of law whether there's enough evidence to make him stand trial for those crimes. And as of right now, the charge of three counts of murder, one of possession of a firearm and ammunition. So that's basically what's gonna happen. If he does find in the preliminary hearing there's enough evidence to bound him over for a trial, then he'll go through pre-trial motions ultimately to get to a, a trial and stand in front of 12 jurors who will either find him guilty or not guilty and he either go to prison or go home. In his case, the DA has already said that they are not seeking the death penalty. Now, as you know, I would like to applaud that particular DA because he's being intelligent. He knows that if he charges him with death penalty, right away he gets a death-qualified lawyer who is an experienced trial lawyer, a lawyer who has experience with death penalties, with de life without, with murder charges. In this situation, he's not going to get anything specialized. He's not going to have an unlimited amount of funds to get investigators, experts, etc. He's basically going to have a run-of-a-mill lawyer because he only has life without the possibility of parole, which isn't only, it's, it's it's the rest of your life in prison. But the amount of money used, the safeguards that are in place, all evaporates. He's basically getting the least amount of representation feasible under the Constitution, which would be totally different if they sought the death penalty. That doesn't mean they're not going to change their mind later because we have different DAs involved here. We have a Stockton DA, we have an Oakland DA, and possibly we have a DA in Chicago because they're tying into a couple murders that happened in Chicago as well. And I don't think he's from Stockton. I should probably have that information, but I guess there's not a lot out there. But yeah, this could mushroom into him being this prolific killer that's traversing the country. And I'm thinking that he went to Stockton out of opportunity. It's a uh, it's a bad place. There's a lot of crime. I I think that maybe he went there because he thought it would be easy to get away with killing people for no other reason. It's possible, but look, he's 43 years old. He has no violence in his, in his record, no priors for violence at all. He has a DUI, which a lot of people have. He has a couple traffic violations, citations, and some time ago he had a drug possession. That's it. There is no violence. He has never had any kind of confrontations where violence erupted. So, you know, you have a man who's 43 years of age and he's been accused of these murders. Now, I always like to say this, you know, everybody's already saying, oh, this guy is the serial killer, this guy is the guy. Look, I would, I would ask people to, you know, reserve that so they get done with the trial and see what really happens. We don't know what is true and what's not. So the media puts things out there. They, they, they're calling him a certain name, they're giving him all this stuff, but in, according to the United States Constitution, in California Constitution specifically, a man is innocent for proving guilty. I know, I know that's not the, the popular thing, it's a lot more attractive to say, hey, he's guilty, let's, you know, let's get a rope. But I always like to first see how things begin to develop before I make that, uh, I guess, opinion on what I think about the case itself. Right now, it's kind of bad. But we'll see as time goes on. But you're looking at this guy's profile, and 
I think you were hinting at something. Maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but we know that when there's a lot of pressure on law enforcement to catch someone when the community is nervous and up in arms, sometimes they will uh, jump the gun. Yes, they take shortcuts sometimes. And look, I understand. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure uh, that people um, in law enforcement feel when you have family members, victims, families asking what's going on. Why is it taking so long? And they get pressured into making a quick arrest. I'm not saying this is what happened this time, but, you know, I, I caution, always caution. And I said, I, I'm a conservative, but I always like common sense rather than party or anything else because I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm the common sense guy. You have an African-American man, and we know that we've had numerous cases, we hear about them every freaking week, where an African-American or a minority person is arrested for a crime, and then 15, 20 years later, after everybody's called them every name in the book, they find out, uh-oh, we got the wrong guy. So I caution to at least allow the judicial process to play through, and then make a judgment call based on evidence rather than a knee-jerk reaction to one of the guy caught. I'm just, just uh, this man, and we don't know who he is, what he's done, or what he hasn't done. So I would caution about that. And I guess I look at the profile, no violence, none. You know, sometimes guys that are killers, they have something in their background. Thus far, the news, the media has not provided anything that I can see any kind of pattern. So we'll have to wait and see that. That would be really uncommon because just the law of numbers, if you go around acting a certain way, you're going to get written up. Usually these guys have an assault or some kind of pedophile type thing, right? Yeah, they usually have something in their background that, that gives a tip to bigger things. But sometimes they don't. We, you know, look at BTK, look at some of the other guys. But also, this guy is not... You know, they like to call people serial killers and so they kill more than one person, which is still horrible. But, I, I, again, I, I, I caution to not put the label serial killer on this guy because we don't see gratification. By definition, a serial killer that kills three or more people, but there's always gratification. There's control, there's sexual gratification. Sometimes they sexualize control. We don't see it, at least I don't see it yet. So I don't like to put the label of a serial killer on somebody when I can't confirm these particular uh, aspects to them that should be there and I don't see them yet. Yet. Let me call back. Alexis in Eastern Canada wants to know, Bill, do you like having visitors? Do you like getting visitors to the prison? I guess it depends on who it is. Um, but sure, I mean, who doesn't want to receive you know, a visit from a friend, from a loved one, from someone that um, you know can help pass the time? Sure. I mean, I would be lying to you and say, no, completely not. Um, I, I have said that sometimes it's stressful because you know, your friend or your family member or your loved one is coming to a prison and they have to go through all kinds of different things, especially traveling to get here. There may be a prison lockdown and you know, this that person. There's a lot of different things that go into it that are stressful both for the visitor and the prisoner. But sure, I mean, yeah, the short answer is, yeah, of course. I mean, I used to get visits from um, family and from friends. 
a lot more now when the COVID situation happened. It kind of shut everything down, but in the last few weeks, they've opened Disney again, and things are changing. So the answer is, yeah, absolutely. And how often would you get people coming to see you? Again, it really would depend on who's coming. Um, family members, you know, that are really close to me usually would come, you know, once a year or something. If uh, sometimes I've had visits as often as every couple of weeks, every three weeks from a friend that is close by. So it really depends. If there's guys that get visits every freaking day. I mean, Thursday or they change busy days. Usually Thursday, Friday, or Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, and now it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And there are guys that get visits like every single day. Me on the other hand, I. I really value my time outside to work out and run and do what I do, and then it's usually working. Hell, I'm always glued to a phone here talking to Matt. That's my visit. Yeah, and most of your family is based in Southern California, like Orange County. Is that right? Yeah. So that's it's south of. Yeah, south of LA. So just getting past, you know, out of LA is. Uh, a bit of a grind just for listeners who aren't familiar with the area. And then you got to go all the way through San Francisco up to Northern, you know, North of San Francisco to Marin County. So you're looking at altogether, realistically a 10 hour trip, uh, unless you do it at the right time of day, you know, leave at four in the morning or something. But so that's not very convenient. No, it's not. But I mean, I mean, some people make a trip. Um, like I said, I, I used to get business quite often. Then COVID hit, things have changed. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a trek, all right. I was talking to a friend when I was working on my other podcast, the Murder on Ice podcast, and I didn't know this that in a lot of states they'll get prisoners and they'll contract with other states to send their prisoners out, which is like, it just seems like such a violation of basic rights. So these guys from Alaska were sent to Colorado to, to go to prison, which is just crazy. So their families had to travel from Alaska to Colorado, which is, I don't know, 3000 miles, something like that. So. Yeah. You know, it's like, it depends on the prisoners. There's, um, in the federal system that happens all the time. If you're in the feds, you can be a California prisoner and they ship you to New York. It's just that simple. That's, that's the federal system. But in the state, you usually stay in the state that you were convicted in. However, there are programs where, and I don't know if they still exist, but California had a program where, let's say you're from Indiana, actually, you were convicted in California. If Indiana has a California prisoner and you guys have about the same amount of time, they'll swap prisoners. So the California prisoner comes back to California and the Indiana prisoner goes back to Indiana. And there's also where if you don't want to be in California, maybe you're not like Dolly, you're a former gang member and you request to be shipped to a different prison in a different state. Well, because you don't have family, you just don't want to be in the same state with all these guys that you possibly pulled on or whatever you did. And they do ship them out of here. So yeah, there's, there's circumstances where it can be convenient for, for a prisoner and others, not so much. Well, in Alaska's case, it was a state prison. They just had these contracts, probably some dirty money with the private prison industry. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it happens in the smaller states where they don't have the resources. But she, uh, <clears throat> my friend, this journalist, Jade, 
described going to the facility in Colorado was something I wouldn't really think of, you know, not being a woman, but she described how she wore baggy clothes and didn't do any makeup. You know, she didn't want to attract the attention of these weirdos. You know, the guys she was seeing were normal, normal guys, but she felt like she was walking into a wolf lair or something. Well, again, it depends on the person and who is in the visitor room. Most visitor rooms is a neutral zone, meaning that nothing takes place in there because visitors are valued and you, know, you don't want to do something with someone's grandmother's in there or something. But most visitor rooms, inmates or convicts won't look at another person's visitor if they're convicts because they understand the consequences behind that. If you disrespect someone's family member by gawking at them or looking at them or sexualizing them in some way or shape or form, there's a penalty that's going to be paid. It's usually dealt with in here. So it really depends on the prison, but I see what she's saying. That, yeah, a lot of women that don't frequent the prison wear baggy clothes, no makeup, and are not to attract the attention of some of these guys who are less, um, I guess you want to call them less than human. But others do the opposite. They have their husbands in here or their boyfriends, their love interests, and they dress to impress, and they want the guy that they're coming to see to really enjoy the visit as best he can. So, you know, hey, more power to him. I was going to ask if the price of gas has led to less visitors coming in, but uh, that kind of leads into a question from Dennis in Helena, Montana. And he says, speaking of clothes, are prisoners allowed to have non-prison attire? And what would they wear if maybe they were getting a visitor or like a TV interview appearance or um, even going to like one of the concerts that they throw? Like, are, are, you, are they allowed to... <clears throat> to have non-prison issued clothing or is there certain prison issued clothing that maybe they think looks better than than something else? I don't know. I don't know anything about it. When we leave ourselves, this is, again, we're talking about, okay, so in California and on death row, whenever you go to a visit, you must be in state attire. State clothing, everything has to be regulation. A blue shirt, blue pants, uh, prison shoes or boots and that's basically it doesn't matter if you go to a, a prison interview there's no television interviews on death row by the way uh, there are no concerts <laughs> those are for nicer guys in nice prisons on death row there are, there are no concerts that's just some crazy guy screaming over the tear and trying to sing like Keith Sweat or something but yeah we don't change clothing uh, the only clothing that we have that we can wear that's not prison attire is our gym clothes, meaning shorts, uh, you know, high top tennis shoes to play basketball, just athletic wear is basically what we're allowed to have. We're allowed to have uh, a jacket, a, a denim jacket. We're allowed to have sweats, gray sweats, gray or white. There's no colors like blue or red because those are affiliated with gangs. So there are no gang attire. The shoes have to be white or gray as well, tennis shoes. So everything's very strict, and there really is no personal clothing here aside for gym clothes. That's it. Would someone have like a fresh shirt, like a prison issued shirt, like a new one, 
that's not faded or anything. Sure. Yeah. Sure, the guys that work don't usually wear their work clothes. I mean, I have a pair of pants that are, you know, they call it bonnaroo in here. They're, they're cut, they're channeled, they're creased. You know, I look like freaking John Travolta in freaking um, Saturday Night uh, Fever. That's what I look like. Octavio in Corvallis, Oregon, he says... Oh, yeah, Bill, you're in the Bay Area. I don't know if you're a big Golden State Warriors fan, but did you see the video of Draymond Green punching Jordan Poole? Yeah, I did see that. And I, yes, I am a fan of the Golden State Warriors. I, I generally don't like any California teams. I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler, Pittsburgh Penguin, and Pittsburgh Pirate fan. But since Pittsburgh does not have a basketball team, I pay close attention to the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry and company, yes. Draymond Green punched Poole, and I don't even know what to say about that. That guy, his emotional stability sometimes raises eyebrows. Well, I've never seen an attack like that in a, a sports setting. That's not a scuffle. You know, that was like a premeditated, uh, I'm trying to hurt the guy. Uh, it was weird, like just attacking him with all of his force and... You know, really as though he were in a, a fight and, and he was trying to hurt someone. I mean, do you think, well, what would happen if that happened on death row? If two prisoners got in a little argument and the other one was bigger than the other guy and hit him right in the face, kind of without the other guy expecting it? Well, I mean, there generally isn't too many fist fights in prison. Usually something comes to the weapon. And if you do punch somebody, and that guy gets in, usually that guy gets in, comes in, makes a, a weapon and comes out and then deals with the guy, the guy's too big. Draymond Green is six foot eight. He's a professional athlete. Poole is also a big guy. These guys are basketball players. I think Poole is like six six. They're both big men. Um, we've had this happen before with Draymond Green where he attacks the team. I think this is the second time he's done it. I think this is by far the worst one. I think he got into a kind of a pushy match with with Durant when he was a teammate of his. Um, and one of the reasons that Durant left. Like, look, we already know that Draymond Green's a great basketball player. He's a great facilitator. He's a, a power forward that's kind of an enforcer. He has a huge uh, or very high basketball IQ. And he plays on emotion. He is the basically the soul of that. But unfortunately, in the last couple of years, those emotions seem to be getting his way. He's been kicked out of games when it was very imperative that he be in there. Uh, he's made mistakes because he gets angry. And then he apologizes says the right thing on, on the news. I, I don't know that cuts with me all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even sure if, if, if Poole um, is going to get over that or not. He may want to leave, but he just signed a $140 million contract, so I guess that took the sting away from that punch. Yeah, so the Warriors... Jordan Poole and Draymond Green were up for a new contract. And I think Draymond knew that they were going to pay Poole and not him. And there's some jealousy there. There's some competitiveness. But, I mean, can a team recover from that and act like everything's normal? I wouldn't feel comfortable around the guy. Or do you think they're professionals and they can kind of forget about it? Well, they are professionals. Like I always say, I don't want to go to a doctor and drop my drawers 
and because doctors are human beings, they remember what they see and what they don't see. So, yeah, um, being professional, I don't think it makes much of a difference. I think what makes a difference is winning. And the Golden State Warriors are a very good team. They're winning. Draymond Green is a multi-millionaire. He's making millions every year. Jordan Poole got a $140 million contract. Um, that's a big contract for a guy only in the league his third or fourth year in the league. Uh, Draymond Green is making excess of $20 million a year. So, will they get over it? I think that winning makes a difference. If they continue winning, they'll forget about that for now. I'm sure they start losing and temper start flaring. That's going to become an issue at some point. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know if the guy has brain damage or something. He has this habit of kicking people and punching them in the balls and now he's punching teammates. I don't I don't know what's wrong with the guy. I, I find him really annoying. And by the way, he looks like he smells. I don't know about that, Matt, but he's, he's very emotional. But as I said, he that's part of his game. He, he's not going to come in and score 30 points. Jordan Poole will. But he'll bring down 10 rebounds. He's a very good defensive player. He usually neutralizes the other team's best score like... When LeBron James is playing, Draymond usually guards him. Um, so he's a very good player. He's a facilitator. He makes people around him better because of his passing. His assists are off the chart. I think he leads the league in assists for a power forward. He's got, I mean, he's, again, an asset. But when you start punching your teammates, there's a big question mark starts arising. How really valuable are you to that teammate? And there's a guy behind him on the bench that's going to get a shot because he continues to act this way and that's a guy by the name of Kaminga Kaminga is a great player he's 6 foot 8 same size as as, um, as Draymond but he also can score 30-35 points for you any given night so I, if I were Draymond Green I was an advisor I'd tell him hey reel it in man because you're going to become expendable really quickly here yeah Kaminga is really good he's way more <clears throat> he's way more athletic than Draymond. Draymond does have a giant ass, and that is really helpful in basketball. I hate playing against guys like that because they can just block you out, and, and plus he's really quick, and so he's just a really unique player. I'm wondering if there's a little bit of a Aaron Hernandez vibe around him, not that he's a serial killer, but I wonder if guys say things when he's not around and that they just find him super annoying and they put up with it. Well, look, sure. Look, all professional athletes have a high motor, you know, a high running motor. And usually when people annoy people, they talk. I mean, these athletes are all the best in the world. These guys, people say, oh, the guy's a bum, he missed two shots. Or these guys will take anybody at any court in the world and just dominate them. So these guys have very hyper, you know, aggressive personality as well. Even a guy like Steph Curry, who's very mild-mannered, good guy, great spokesperson, has wife, his children. When he gets angry and you see him out there, you see a whole different person because of that hyper-competitiveness. Uh, Competitiveness makes you into a different person while you're competing. So, look, they're professional athletes that make a lot of money. Like I like to say, that's rich people problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a strange question. Omar from San Dimas, California, home of Raging Waters, Water Park, he asks, Bill, when did they take away the pornography from prisoners, and was there a mass rebellion? Yeah, there was a mass rebellion. Yes, of course. He's really strange. This guy 
yes, they took away all the pornography in prison, and there was a mass rebellion. All these erect penises are right towards the gate, you know, charging the wardens off because they want their pornography. <laughs> yeah, I heard a couple guards got stabbed to death with uh, erect dicks. Yeah, no, they, they, they did take it because we've, in the last few decades, a lot of women have come into the prisons, and these guys have put these pictures of naked women in all sorts of positions on their walls, and of course you have weirdos in prison as well, and they would talk to the women that are working and the women felt offended and I, and I understand why that they go into a cell to search and they see all these pornography on the walls of, of sexual intercourse so I can see why they took it um, do I know it do I think it's the best idea I don't think so because then you know that's, that was kind of a release for these guys I mean some of them they look at pornography they do what they do but now that they don't have that some of them have sought this thing that they some prisoners do is called gunning. And what they do is they saw they see a female officer or a female um, staff member, they get naked and they start to masturbate in front of them. Of course, that's not what convicts do, but this is what weirdos do. And you have that more and more happening because of there's no pornography, there's no release. And of course, I'm, I'm sure that if they check the number, I'm sure that rapes have gone up as well in prison because of that these guys don't have a release and everything is blurred out. They don't, they can't see magazines they can't receive them anymore they can't get playboy penthouse or whatever they were getting um because at one point they, they allowed anything you wanted as much pornography and as crazy pornography you wanted you can get it in prison that has changed there hasn't been a mass rebellion of course but there are different signs you can tell that it's bothering the, the population because i mentioned guys you know masturbating for women that walk by and all kinds of crazy stuff that i don't understand but Obviously, these guys have psychological problems. So when you could get as much porn as you wanted, I would imagine that these guys would have huge collections. Sure. There's guys, you know, like I mentioned, I've mentioned before, the guys at Richard Ramirez, Lawrence Bittaker, with the, the porn kings in here. They would buy, you know, by the bulk, by the pound, I don't know what they call it, but they'd buy magazines with hardcore pornography, and they would sell them. They would sell them for... You know, a lot of money on, on the yards and stuff. So they always had it. So sure, guys had access to that stuff. They don't anymore. And, you know, I mean, I'm not one of those guys that really indulged in pornography, but um, guys do here, obviously. So is there contraband pornography? Like, is it, you, you're making it sound like it's really hard to get. I would think, you know, you can get drugs. Maybe you can get pornography. Sure, if there's a will, there's a way. I'm sure that there's guys that get it in other ways, you know, that they invent how to get the stuff. And, you know, there are magazines they get that don't show prior parts, but they're G-string and stuff like that. They get those kind of magazines. I'm sure it's not very difficult to get something they really wanted. Yeah, yeah. But now you're back at, like, junior high school level. You know, you're trying to get off on a, a Sears catalog or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sears catalog. You, you, you seem to know way too much about these catalogs. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to uh, delve deeper into the mind of Matt Ralston and his habits of pornography. Well, that was the, the Victoria's Secret. I think that was part of their business model. And, you know, they'd send out these catalogs that were just pornography, basically. And I don't know if they were for the 
lady of the house or the the husband but uh i don't know that company had a, a lot of problems with it to say the least you know including a connection to jeffrey epstein yeah, and I'm sure that young Matt Ralston, all six foot four, he was running around the neighborhood early in the morning, opening up mailboxes, doing all, all the Victoria's Secret catalogs on. Oh, sure. I was telling my mom, you know, <laughs> like what? I, I got to buy some new socks. Last question. <laughs> let me, let me. Well, you know, everybody asks me questions, you know. When, when do I get to ask somebody a question, you know? I mean, because um, I, I see you getting all these questions. I, I feel a little left out here. I mean, I'm thinking about a question I should ask you, Matt, but I, I, I don't know what to ask you. I mean, you know, how, you know, we always, when I call you, especially you're in your car, man, what kind of car do you drive? Well, I drive, so here's what happened. I had a BMW and I had this habit of not locking the doors and a homeless person slept in the car and I could not get the smell out. <laughs> I took it to a couple places and the smell would not leave and I was sprinkling baking soda in there and everything. And finally I just said, you know what? I'm getting rid of it. I don't want to have a car payment and uh, I'm just not a big car guy. So I got rid of it. I just sold it to one of those places that buys cars, you know, like, um, like CarMax basically, but better. And so I was renting a car and my friend called me. He lived in Palm Springs at the time. And this is my friend from Alaska. So he said, you know, you're supposed to come visit me. And he said, why Why are you renting a car? That's a waste of money. I have an extra car. You know, hang tight. I'll come pick you up. And then you can drive the car back. And you can just drive it until you get a new car. And this was an 05 Camry. A lot of rust on it. And he's a smoker. So he he told me the only time that he drives the car is if he has to smoke a cigarette. So, <laughs> so, uh, oh, wow. yeah, so I got that car and, uh, you know, then the price of cars went way up. Even, even used cars and everything were like 50% above the value. And I thought, you know what? I kind of like, uh, not having, a payment or anything and just owning something outright. And I'm just going to drive that car until it falls apart and then I'll get a new car. And, uh, in fact, someone made a comment the other day, I was pulling into a meeting and they said, uh, Oh, where'd you get that car or whatever? And I said, are you a homeowner? <laughs> because a lot of times it's a waste of money. If you're a guy in LA, say you're a single guy and you feel like someone's going to judge you because you don't have a, you know, a certain make and model of car. It's like, all right, well, I don't know if you want to be dating those chicks anyway. And you're telling me that you're going to pay. If you're not someone who really cares that much about cars, you're going to pay an $800 a month tax essentially to impress shallow women. Uh, no, thanks. So I'm happy with the car. I have. Well, I'm just, I'm just focusing again on the bumps. Everywhere you go, Matt, there's bums. There's potential circus trying to break into your house at six in the morning. The it's actually the paper boy is trying to get you. You have these gang members trying to break into your garage. I'm 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 seeing a pattern here. You know, call me a profiler or not, but I'm seeing a pattern here, Matt. That you have these issues with homeless people and weirdos, man. Yeah, you know, I don't know, Matt. It's called living in L.A. 
you know, Fox News with all their stoking of fear is not that far off. I don't think LA is what it was last time you saw it. It's getting pretty bad. And uh, yeah, that's just kind of part of the whole deal now you know and i think about it like is it getting worse you know you look at statistics like uh, it's marginally worse but i'm looking at what i'm seeing and it's much worse yeah i think you're right yeah that's probably if i ever got out of here i probably wouldn't live in in california i probably would in north carolina or somewhere out to the beach yeah yeah um Well, I think we've exhausted the whole topic for today, and uh, I guess we can leave it at that until next time. I have 60 seconds remaining. Oh, I agree. Yeah. So, of course, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagar. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on We'll see you next time. Thank you. All right, Matt. Um, I'm bad, right? Yeah, that's good.